Americans have very short memories and short attention. So why don't you write about Trump? I would not write about Trump. <laughs> what a bore, what a waste. Oh my the statement hovers in the air like a trapped moth fluttering. The first Leblacan bill, I don't know that I've said this to anybody before, it's a kind of double Ma'am, I said you can relax your fist. Of all commands, Let's see if we can all just relax a little. Hello and welcome to the Fictionable Podcast with me, Richard Lee. One year on from our first edition, we're changing things up a bit on the podcast so we can hear more from our excellent contributors. Over the next few weeks, we'll be welcoming Fiona Mosley, José Falero and his translator Maria Jacqueline Evans, Donald McLaughlin and Saba Khan. But this programme is devoted to Joyce Carol Oates and her short story Small Veins, which appears alongside all those others in our summer issue. So here she is, shrugging off the after-effects of a Covid infection and a dodgy line from New Jersey, with the opening from Small Veins. You have very small veins. The statement hovers in the air like a trapped moth fluttering. The first phlebotomist withdraws the needle again, calls over a second, more experienced phlebotomist who also can't find a usable vein. Then the vexed voice calls over a third phlebotomist who must be the most experienced of all, by happenstance the lone male in the blood work lab. Young for such authority, brusque and super confident, tapping veins in the soft flesh of your inner left arm and the soft flesh of your inner right arm, seeking the vein that will be his. Make a fist, man. Swipe of alcohol, familiar sickening smell. This will pinch a little, ma'am. Pinch. Steal yourself. First try, he's in. Well, this is a surprise. After the flailing of his female predecessors, the young male phlebotomist has secured a usable vein on the first try. Resist thanking him in a rush of gratitude. Your manner in the blood lab should remain reticent, formal. The focus of your determination is not fainting. You can relax your fist, ma'am. Sitting very stiff, very still on a sturdy utilitarian stool with wide, formica smooth armrests and a misremembered restraining bar across the midriff. But no, there is no restraining bar. Very stiff, very still, will yourself to breathe normally, evenly inside your surgical mask, averting your eyes out of a practical wish not to observe your own dark blood siphoning into little plastic vials. Ma'am, I said you can relax your fist. Of all commands, surely this is the most difficult. Relax. With more than 60 novels and 40 collections of short stories, not to mention novellas, plays and criticism, Oates is the master of fiction in all its forms. But when we spoke across the jags and glitches of the internet, I started by asking her if she'd paid for the story Small Veins with her own blood. Oh, yes, this is very much a story from my own life. I've given some fictional swerve to it, but everything, uh -huh, pretty much. Is that often the way with short stories? They just come from a moment? I don't know how to answer that because I write short stories a lot, and some of them are quite conceptual. So they're more like ideas or situations 
that then need to be given a specific time and place. And others arrive out of uh, personal experience, usually a little bit of a jolt, some sort of a surprise. Now, this story was written sometime during the pandemic. COVID's on the fade, isn't it? Oh, yes. It's, it's not predominant. But people are still wearing masks, which they still do here in, uh, in doctor's offices, but not, not elsewhere. People are not wearing masks anymore now. Like if I went out, I would wear a mask because I'm sort of in isolation. I'm no longer contagious. I was only contagious for five days, I think. But anyway, uh, yeah, it sprang from a, a real experience. I have small veins. So whenever I go to have my blood drawn, there's always some sort of a, a tussle, which phlebotomist is going to be able to do it. And sometimes they start off with one person, then they call over another person, and then a third person. I try to keep a sort of sense of humor about it. You know, I should just say, please send your best phlebotomist over right now. <laughs> because who is he? Like, he's somewhere here. It's always the case in a blood lab, there's one person who's the best. And it could be a man or a woman, but they don't start you with that one. You were saying that sometimes your short stories are kind of conceptual or sometimes they spring from a moment. I guess, is there any difference with the novels? The novels also start in various different ways, depending on the story. A novel is like a big river. It's like a big body of water moving along with many contributaries. Smaller streams go into it. And the, the writing of a novel takes place over months or years. So a lot goes into it from daily life. But the overall conception is usually something that predates. So I'm working on a novel now. It's gotten so much longer than I had anticipated. I wanted it to be a novella, but it's already at about 300 pages. When you have characters that you care about and the scenes that are cinematic, they're sort of exciting as action, you know, you don't want to gloss over them and summarize them. If you have a scene that's exciting, you really want to realize it. Yeah, you want to live it. You want to live it. So that starts to happen when people write novels. Uh, whatever their original conception is, it's usually like you're looking at a distance. And then as you drive along, the horizon keeps receding because you're going along and you're seeing more exciting landscape and taking more pictures. So it's a, it's a mixture of the original concept and then the daily life impressions and thoughts. Some of your collections of short stories are just titled stories, while others are called tales of suspense or mystery and suspense or tales of terror. Do you sit down to write them differently or are these labels that you add after the fact? Well, that's an interesting question because I have two publishers in, in the United States. I have a mainstream publisher, which is now Kanav, and then I have another publisher, which is Mysterious Press. Mysterious Press publishes genre work the focus is on crime, but they will publish me because I write about mystery. Whereas the mainstream publisher, it's not necessarily about any genre or about mystery, or it's about, I guess, unique, unlabeled literary work. So I have a novel called Breathe, which came out a couple of years ago. And that's very much a novel in which there's no crime mm. and there's no violence. I guess there is some suspense in a way, but it's a novel that is a reflective novel. 
introspective. Sometimes with the genre writing, after it comes out, I see that I could revise it and make it more of a plot. I don't focus so much on plot. I should explain, I'm an experimental writer. I'm a formalist, and I like to work with forms. So if I were a poet, I'd be experimenting with sonnets and villanelles and so forth, but always experimenting, not trying just to write the formula. A story like Small Veins is, I consider, a literary story. Yeah, me too. (laughs) And it doesn't have a necessary obvious resolution. It has a resolution that the reader may surmise. And it's more suggestive, and it builds upon storytelling. Like, what is the meaning of a story? Somebody tells you a story, there's a meaning behind that story. So there's a story within a story here. And the protagonist drives away and she sort of thinks what that story meant. I actually had this experience, but I'm not sure that it meant literally to me what it means in the story, because the story is a work of fiction. So as I drove away, I thought, why did the doctor tell me that story? And there's no answer because in life, you don't have answers. So in writing the story, I sort of gave an answer. But I have another version of this story, which is called The Phlebotomist. Hmm. And that is coming out in a collection of Tales of Terror. And so in that version, it's almost the same story, except The Phlebotomist is the nemesis of the protagonist. The doctor is not important. It's the connection with the man drawing the blood. Hmm. And it's a very eerie and creepy version of of something that happened. In a funny way, the two stories would go together. I didn't think too much about it until just now. I wrote Small Veins first, and then later on I wrote The Phlebotomist because it's sort of a creepy story. It seemed to you that there was still territory to explore in that, a creepy territory to explore in that moment. Yes, because during the pandemic, and of course I'm a widow, I you know, have a lot of thoughts that are sometimes sad or melancholy, And I think all widows feel left behind or abandoned or, you know, it's not necessarily a conscious feeling. So I'm thinking of the terms of an allegory that the phlebotomist is like the person who assists you in your dying. He's the person who takes all your blood. And so it takes the image of a very normal, natural medical worker and kind of gives it a gothic twist is in a nether world. We have a daylight world, and then we have the nether world as like a negative. Reading your most recent collection of stories, Zero Sum, the moments of connection like you have in Small Veins between the protagonist and the Doctor, they're quite rare. Is that how it feels to you, that moments in life where you get a genuine connection with someone, those moments are rare, they're hard won? Well, that's probably true. Short stories have to be constructed so they're moving along a trajectory. So you start at point A, you have to get to point B or point C, and then that's the end. It's very finite. Whereas in life, we have connections with people that drag on for years and it's sort of up and down and you see a person and you don't see a person. I've had people disappear on me who were not feeling well, a close friend. So for two or three months, he was in bed. Before he wrote to me, I would have thought, well, he's disappeared from my life. How strange is that? Because I thought we were close friends. 
But then I get the email, it completely restores the relationship and explains it. That's more like real life with a lot of starts and starts and jolts and disappointments, but then surprises, you know. Whereas in a, in a short story, it's using one effect. You know, as Poe said, you're trying for one effect. You talk about pauses. There are actually lots of italics and parentheses, dashes, short paragraphs in small veins. And actually in much of your recent fiction as well, is this kind of restless improvisatory feel, a way of capturing the ebb and flow of thought? I think if we're honest, we have thoughts that many thoughts parenthetical. When you're talking to somebody, there's a directness to it. But at the same time, you know, somebody says something to you, you answer in a very normal way, but you're thinking, oh, he says this all the time, or he doesn't mean it, or she's just being friendly, but it's hypocritical. You know, we have these thoughts that we don't honor textually. It's all sort of subtextual. So with prose fiction, you can do all these other things. You can go beneath the surface. And a lot of the characters in my stories are thoughtful. They overthink. You're also bashful about names. The phlebotomist is only identified by that glimpse of his name tag with the initial M. And Dr. G only gets the underscores, a full 18th century blank treatment. Is this because you're drawing from life or is this to give us a sense of reality that you're hiding the real identity of these fictional characters? Yeah, I think hiding the real identity. If I gave them actual names, it would somehow diminish them. In this way, they're sort of archetypal. They're both individuals, but they're something larger than individuals. I think about that a lot. I've written novels in which characters appear who are who have their identities as the ex-athlete or the president, you know, or the playwright, because they only relate to Marilyn Monroe. She's the blonde actress. They only relate to her as the blonde actress. They wouldn't care at all about her. And nobody would care about them either if they if they didn't have this mantle. You know, you have a perfectly ordinary looking man of in his sixties or so. He's not especially attractive and he wouldn't attract Marilyn Monroe, but he's the playwright. He's won a Pulitzer Prize, like because he's wearing this hat like the playwright, she's attracted to him. And you know, and naturally we all are. And we experience that when we go out in the world. We see people who are admired and, you know, fulsomely flattered only because of the power that they supposedly have. If they lose that power, nobody cares about them. You said that you wrote Small Veins during the pandemic, during one of those phases when the pandemic was on the ease. I'm wondering how long you think COVID-19 is going to stretch its shadow over contemporary fiction. Americans have very short memories and short attention spans. We see people already who are trying to revise the past and they're trying to say, oh, well, it wasn't that serious and I didn't get sick. The fact is over one million people died in this country, in addition to all the people who died of gunshots and heart disease and this and that. You know, it's not instead of all these other people dying. It's an addition. But people want to revise the past. After the influenza epidemic of uh, 1918 or 1917, whatever it was, it said that within a few years, people had mostly forgotten and they didn't want to talk about it. So I would say people are not going to write about COVID. They're going to just move on. Mm. And I probably would be one of them. Mm. I've written about it enough. In the novel you're working on now, does COVID feature at all? No. It's gone. No. 
People sometimes say, why don't you write about Trump? I would not write about Trump. <laughs> what a bore. What a waste. Oh, my God. You know, you have to be Gabriel Marquez. It has to be Latin American craziness and magic realism. In America, it's just this buffoon who repeats himself. He's never going to get in any story of mine. I think literary writers tend to want to write about something that will be more universal, even timeless. I was wondering about how you strike that balance between timeliness and timelessness when you're writing fiction set here and now. I wrote a story that was in The New Yorker in the fall of 2019, where people were wearing masks because of environmental pollutions like in the soil. Mm. And that was astonishing because in a few months, people were all going to be wearing masks because of COVID. And people said, oh, Joyce, you have this story about people wearing masks. How did you know that was going to happen? <laughs> I didn't know that was going to happen because nobody knew that was going to happen. Do you try and remove things that are going to look old in five years? Or do you try and do you try and get as specific as you can to that moment so that moment will come alive? Yeah, but you don't need to do much. John Updike had some novels, some rabbit novels, where he tried to put everything in, like who's president, the politicians and people in the news. And I think at the time, people liked it. The rabbit novels now are almost unreadable. You know, they're heavy with all this specific stuff. And when we read a novel, we read about characters and emotions. And the other stuff is like impediments now. I think John would, would know that. I've never done that in a, in a novel. It's a fine line. Stephen King puts a lot of brand names in his writing, but they're brand names that go across decades. So not too much. <laughs> yeah, and I, I always revise after I publish a story in a magazine and bring them maybe more uh, out of any historical present. I was struck by a moment in your story, Monster Sister, an unsettling story where some kind of growth appears at the back of a young girl's head, becomes a kind of unwanted twin. There's a moment where she considers her situation from a disinterested objective perspective and finds it interesting how the unimaginable improbable will become within a surprisingly short period of time the imagined probable yeah well that happens to us all too often i mean it happens politically too yeah the unspeakable becomes normal and what happened here in this country it feels very contemporary right now yeah yeah. Well, the story obviously is a gothic story and has a lot of uh, psychological significance. It's also about just about illness and maybe getting older. But I remember my young father, when he was quite young, saying, oh, if I ever get to be like that, like my grandfather, take me out and shoot me. Or Then when my father got elderly and he was ill, he had cancer, he was totally different. He was happy just to be able to sit in the sun. You know, it was, I remember the two fathers, like that father who was young and brazen, then the father who was older and much wiser, and he wasn't going to live much longer, and he was going to enjoy the day. He was going to sit in the sun, he was going to read and listen to music. His life had so narrowed, you know, like one thousandth of his life when he was 30, but it was precious to him. We all have that to consider, though we may think we can't survive and you don't want to live, you know, you say, I've lost this, I don't want to live. When the time comes, probably we will say, thank God, you know, I can sit in the sun or I have my dog 
or I have my cat. The pleasures become really very important. The fact that you have three things that you can do and not 30, they're more precious in, in a way than the 30 things. I'm wondering if that notion of the unimaginable becoming imaginable, that's a very kind of Oatesian notion as well. That's one of yours. It's something I write about. Something you seem to come back again and again to exploring that kind of territory. In my heart, I'm sort of like a 14-year-old girl. In some ways, I have the same personality. I have the same kind of insecurity, curiosity, or, or wonderment, not knowing what's coming. All of my life, I've been curious about the future. And at the same time, I'm not 14 now. And so there are like these two consciousnesses. When I walk into a library, it's like a 14-year-old girl walking into a library. And to me, it's a treasure place and uh, exciting. I don't want to go over to the shelf and look at oats because in my fantasy of being 14, there's nothing there. You haven't written it yet. <laughs> I don't want to think that the future has been fulfilled. I don't know that I've said this to anybody before. It's a kind of double consciousness. Now, I know very well that I'm not 14. At the same time, I'm much more interested in the 14-year-old than I am in the person who's in her 80s. I'm really not going to write about her. I'm unlikely to write about the 14-year-old or the 20-year-old. Hmm. I'm not very interested in my own career but I am interested in what I'm writing at the present time. You know, to me, that's like an unschooling. Or I spoke of a novel as a river and traveling along the river and looking around, and that's exciting. I don't really care where, where the river came from. And <laughs> somebody might say, well, Joyce, you've been on so many rivers. I said, no, no, I'm not thinking of the other rivers. I don't remember them, I'm, I'm on this river. And on the river, you can die, you can drown. You know, lots of things happen on a river, so it's exciting. Exciting indeed. That was Joyce Carol Oates. We'll keep paddling along in her wake. To read Small Veins, as well as brand new stories from Fiona Mosley, José Falero, translated by Maria Jacqueline Evans, Donald McLaughlin, and a graphic short story from Sabah Khan, just search for Fictionable on your mobile, tablet, laptop, or internet-enabled kayak. For £20, you get a year's worth of exclusive new short stories and comics. Look for subscribe in the handy menu on the right-hand side. You'll also get unlimited access to our ever-expanding archive of stories from writers including Ali Smith, Edgar Kerrett, Diana Evans and Isabel Greenberg. We'd love to hear what you make of our new expanded podcast, as well as all our blogs and stories. So at us on Mastodon, Instagram or Twitter, or get out the quilt pen and write to us on info at fictionable.world. Next time we'll be getting an update on Fiona Mosley's job hunt. Alex. You haven't worked as a gangland enforcer. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> and hearing from her story, Kade Idris. With thanks to Joyce Carol Oates, that's all for this time. So from me, Richard Lee, and our producer, Esther Poku-Jenny, thanks for listening and goodbye. Thank you.